You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. I'm going to start off a little differently than I anticipated. I was thinking about this a lot, and uh, this week I saw this thing on the internet. It was a picture of a guy standing in a field, real downtrodden, really sad, and said, no one asked me today if I could run fast in my new shoes. Being an adult is stupid. <laughs> and then the next day, when I picked up my son from his school, the kids that hold the door were like, those are some really cool shoes. And all week they've been referring to me as the cool dad with cool shoes. So I just want to say, let's be more like those kids to each other. <laughs> let's not make each other stand downtrodden thinking being an adult is stupid. So you all have really cool shoes today, and you're all really cool, and I'm glad you're here with us. Thanks for letting me do that. <laughs> I don't know why I was thinking about that. Uh, it, it's good to be with you in the mor- this morning. I know there's a lot going on this week. I know we've had a lot going on. I know some of you are thinking about a sporting event coming up. Some of you have jerseys on, you know. There's some rivalry in the room, I think mostly just against David. Uh, but that's all right. <laughs> We've had a lot going on this weekend, right? We had a workshop, we had a film discussion, we've had, we have a Super Bowl party coming up this afternoon. Some of you are, are going to enjoy that. I know I've heard a lot of talk about uh, Buffalo Chicken Dip, and I've heard a lot of talk about the football game. So I, I realize there's two camps of people that are engaged in this. Some of us are there for the snacks, and some of us are there for the football, right? You figure out where I'm at. Buffalo Chicken's not my, my deal, but I'm there for the snacks, let me tell you. Uh, in the midst of all we've had going on, I hope you've had a chance to engage in our passage uh, with your small group this week, right? This is a normal part of our rhythm. I love this part of our rhythm. We get a chance to study it together as a smaller community, and then we get to study it together here as a larger community. You know, it, this is the time in our service, which I love, and if you haven't heard me say this, you're going to hear me say it almost every single time. I love getting to look at the word of the Lord with you. Look at, do a Bible study, see what the Lord has for us here on Sunday mornings. And that's what we're going to do right now. That's what we're going to engage with. The Lord has a message for us. He's recorded it in scripture, and we're blessed by that. And so each Sunday we gather to look at it, to see what he has for us. So let's do that. Let's, let's dive into our passage. If you've been with us, you know we've been working through the book of 1 Timothy, right? Uh, for This is our fifth week. Uh, we're, uh, we started way back uh, at the Sunday right before classes got started. And this is our final week. This is our wrap-up message. And some of you very kindly pointed out that we skipped chapter 5. And you are absolutely right. We did skip chapter 5 in this book. You see, there's just so few weeks we have together. And there's so much... I want us to accomplish so much we want to accomplish, so much we want to cover. We chose to skip this passage. Now, chapters four through six sort of work all as one unit. They're kind of continued instructions and then closure. So so we gave you a handhold on how to handle chapter four. Five is real similar. And then we're on to the closing here. And that's where we're at this morning, the wrap-up of the letter, the conclusion of the letter. You know, you you can remember with me what we've covered over these past weeks, right? First Timothy, it breaks down into four major chunks is, is what, I, uh, gave to, what I offered to you as a handhold initially. Chapter 1, it's all about Timothy's calling to ministry. Chapter 2, remember, that was about orderly worship, how we structure our worship times. Chapter 3, the qualifications for church leaders and church servants, right? Elders or overseers, deacons, deaconesses, servants. Chapter 4, 
and through six are sort of more specific instructions for us to live as a healthy church, right? And then, and then we wrap up here. This book, right, it, it, remember, it's, it's written by the Apostle Paul, an older, uh, you know, follower of disciple to a younger follower of uh, disciple of Jesus, Timothy. Paul's been a mentor to Timothy. They've served together as missionaries for a number of years. They know each other well. We call this a pastoral letter, right? It's a pastoral epistle. It's a pastor writing to another pastor to help encourage him. Paul, an older pastor, writing to Timothy, a younger pastor. He's helping him in his ministry, but because of their, their deep relationship, their long history together, it's heartfelt, right? Paul is caring for Timothy in a very trying time in his ministry. And all along, we've been reminding you, it covers a lot of territory, but at the heart of it is how to be a healthy church, right? There's false teachers, there's disorderly worship services, there's how to identify leaders and, and their qualifications, and then there's instructions and, and how to handle just daily life in the church. All of it is about being a healthy body of Christ, a healthy church, and how Timothy can lean in to help and get that church healthy. So that's what we've been, that's where we've been at. Today, as we look at the first half of chapter six, we're going to see the conclusion to the letter. And at the forefront will be a healthy church, just as we've said all along. This section, it closely mirrors the beginning of the letter, right? We examined four weeks ago. There's sort of a bookend here. You know, we, we, we return to the, the central concern of the book, the central reason for why Paul was writing, the core issue challenging the church in Ephesus, false teachers, false doctrine, impure teachings of Jesus. Here, Paul, he expands on these teachers, their motives, their character. He tells us a number of things about them and how to identify them, what's motivating them. He includes some proverbial wisdom with, with sort of a God spin on it uh, to illustrate that point. And as we look at this passage, it's just a short eight verses this morning. As we look at the start of this conclusion here, we're going to see that motives matter. In the church, impure motives lead to peril, to, to hardship, to evil. But contentment, contentment in the Lord leads to prosperity. We're going to see that what drives our hearts indicates the fruit we bear, what kind of church we'll be. If you remember nothing else from this morning, remember that impure motives lead to peril, but contentment leads to prosperity. Let's take a look at our passage and unpack how, how we get there. Right? Let's see wh wh where that comes from. The first six verses in our passage, they're going to focus on these false teachers and talk about their motives, their character, who they are, what they're like. So let's read. Let's see. Picking up in the second half of verse 2. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved of mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means to gain. Now, first off, let me step back. Some of you are concerned that I started halfway through a verse, right? <laughs> Just like some of you are concerned that we skipped chapter 5, and, and you're you are right. Let me, let me offer an explanation here. 
uh, it's largely accepted that verse 2 in this chapter spans, it's, it's like three sentences in most English translations, it spans the conclusion of the, the further instructions and the beginning of the, of the conclusion here. Right, the language and structure here for the words teach and urge these things, it's clear it, it's talking about the entire breadth of this letter, like all the instructions, all these things that Paul has been doing at, it's been driving at. It reaches across the whole letter, all the instructions and teachings for a healthy church that Paul has laid out. Furthermore, the, the addition of verses and chapter numbers, these are, these are a modern artifact of our Bibles. This is not Paul's original letters, right? He, he didn't write these numbers to enumerate his thoughts. Uh, these verses were added much later. They're helpful for us, right? They're really helpful for us to reference and know where things are at, know, uh, you know, our verse memories and, and, and how to get to things, what we're talking about. So they're helpful for us, but they're not inspired, right? And I would say this is a clear place where the verse number was put in the wrong place, or we're just lacking an extra verse here, a verse number here. It's just off. So we're focusing our study on what is the consistent literary chunk, the beginning conclusion of the letter. And these, preach these things, teach these things goes with the conclusion, not, not verse uh, section prior. So hopefully that solves that objection. If it doesn't, come talk to me later. I'll talk to you a little more about it. Uh, so here, here we're seeing Paul in the second half of verse 2 and on. We're seeing Paul instruct Timothy to teach and urge the things he has instructed up until this point, right? He returns to the primary concern of the letter, false teachers, right? We've been all over. We've false teachers, and then we talked about, you know, uh, orderly worship, identifying leaders, qualifications for leaders. There's instructions for widows and orphans and slaves and, or, or, sorry, widows and, uh, and elders and slaves. And, and now we're back to the conclusion. Like, t t teach on all these things, right? Come back. False teachers. Address false teachers. That's the heart of the dysfunction in the church. These teachers, they're teaching a different doctrine, teaching something against the words of Jesus. He explains that the heart of it, the heart of their motivation, is an unhealthy craving for controversy. Unhealthy craving for controversy. I don't know if that stood out to you as you did your study. This is a core part of this passage. The phrase is important. It reveals their first motive, right? What drives them? They long for controversy, for endless debates, right? They thrive on contention. Their unhealth stands in contrast to a healthy church, right? The goal of a healthy church. See, they have a love affair with controversies and arguments, and it's impaired their mental health is sort of the imagery here. Like, they've cons it's consumed their hearts to the point where, where they're diseased, they can't bring health in a church because they're unhealthy and spreading their unhealth. This has led them to be deprived of the truth. And here the, the Greek is, is beautiful. It, it illustrates a picture of a person that is coming in to rob you and you just help them. You give them all your things. You're like, here, take the truth from me. I don't need it, right? They've deprived themselves of the truth. They've given themselves over to controversy rather than Jesus. They've fallen in love with controversy, not Jesus. And that's where their hearts are at. That's their unhealth. You know, this is a person. This is a, a leader, a speaker, a, a, a person in a church that's more interested about argue, arguing about theology than knowing Jesus. More interested in having the theological superior stance than loving their neighbor, right? It's unhealthy. It leads to division, to, to disunity, 
It fractures communities. It divides relationships, right? It causes constant friction is the word that Paul uses. And this person challenges every decision. They, they play the contrarian role. They're the, the actually guy, right? Every time you're discussing something in small group, right? We know, we know these people. We've been these people. I can. I, I have been. We've met them before. We see them online, All right? This type of person, they're self-centered. They're vain. Their leadership, they're, they're, when they speak, it's all about themselves and furthering their position, their power, their gain to show you how much more they are, how better they are, how smarter they are. We ought to be on the lookout for these types of leaders in, in the church and flee from them. Flee from churches where the leaders belittle other believers. That is another manifestation of this. Churches that regularly speak about why they are better than the rest, right? How they've got it figured out and no one else does. Be concerned. Flee from churches where anything other than godliness and the teachings of Jesus are elevated as primary. If a church adheres to a theological framework above Jesus, question it. If a church lives from a place of pride as the only true expression of the faith or the right expression of the faith, question it. And if a church implicitly or explicitly tells you that it is the only way to Jesus, the true way to Jesus, run from it. It's a false gospel. It's a false teacher. These are false teachers with impure motives, being actually setting themselves up as better, loving the controversial, loving to divide. Now, Paul also goes on, right? And he, he says there's another key motive that these teachers have. This is one that is unwavering throughout history. It doesn't take a lot of translation to our, to our current demographic or our current society, right? Greed. Greed is one of their motives. It's a desire for more wealth. These false teachers are ultimately motivated by their greed. They put on godliness to make a buck, right? They, they see teaching uh, about God as a way to, to make money, to get rich, right? They put on religion like a game of dress-up to make money, right? Show up on Sunday to get my paycheck, it's a false and shallow religion that they preach and that they follow. It resembles godliness, like it sounds okay on the outside, but it's hollow. It's void of meaning on the inside. There's no Jesus in their heart, just maybe on their lips. Greed has taken over their heart and left no room for Jesus. They see religion as a way to get rich, and that's their goal. Which, every time I think about this, is just comical, right? Because if I wanted to be rich, I'd choose a different profession, just to be real honest with you, right? Uh, I don't know many pastors that are Scrooge McDuckin' it through their, their cash, right? We're not flushing cash, <laughs> most pastors, right? Maybe that's just the campus ministry, the worlds I live in, uh, because, you know, we all have read the stories. We've seen the megachurch pastors with their absor- crazy salaries, right? We've, we've seen the televangelists asking for send me money and God will bless you. There's certainly greed still in the church that can happen. Some of them are still putting on religion to make a buck, trying to get rich. And that way, I guess not much has changed in sort of what motivates. You see, because the, the thing is, is, church leaders are not immune to the sin of greed, right? Just like nobody else is. In fact, I, I, would, I would argue that much of the modern evangelical world has been a safe haven for gifted, narcissistic speakers who are greedy, greedy for bigger platforms, larger congregations, wider reach, bigger salaries, bigger houses, 
bigger churches. Right? For much of, of past decades, if a person packs the house, if they increase attendance, if, if they get more people in the pews, we reward them. We reward them with book deals, with excessive salaries, with, with more spotlights, with you know, more interviews. Become famous, coveted speakers that we seek out for conferences. It's a culture that can feed impure motives and allow greed to thrive. See, because what happens when we live at a distance from a leader, we can struggle to see them for who they are, right? When we're talking about motives, it's character. It's hard to see someone's character. It's hard to see their motives if you can't see them regularly. Now, I'm not saying all leaders of a large church or, or, or all leaders that are distant are, have impure motives. That's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that it becomes easier to hide when the only time your church sees you is through a screen on a Sunday with 1,000 or 20,000 other people. It's hard to observe the character and motive, the heart of a leader when you only see them when they're performing a message on Sunday. But Paul tells us the fruit of, of false teachers, and that's why we need to be careful and look. The fruit of false teachers is not anything we want in our lives. It's envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. It divides. It bears bad fruit, rotten fruit. And so I encourage you, observe the life and character of those that lead you. Observe the life and character of all of us. Check our motives. Let's check our heart. Because motives matter more than results. Motives matter more than results. More than the number of seats filled on a Sunday, more than an attendance number, motives matter. Because the long-term fruit of arrogant, combative, greedy leaders are broken lives, fractured relationships, chaos, and evil. Right? And I say this, heartbroken, right? We've seen the aftermath of this, right? The controversies of Mars Hill, Willow Creek, Harvest Bible Chapel hit home to a lot of us. Many of us have friends deeply affected about the falls of these church leaders over the last decade. They show us with clarity what impure motives can lead to. Leaders with impure motives plant seeds that yield rotten fruit. And when that fruit comes to bear, the congregation is left picking up the pieces, lives are shattered, faith deconstructed, Jesus questioned. So Timothy needs to stand against these leaders just like we need to. We need to carefully check motive, carefully check heart. We are to stand against leaders, false leaders as well. Let's be people that examine our hearts and the hearts of those that lead us. Let's check their motives. Let's not just look at their skills. Let's consider the fruit of the church that we're attending, right? Not just how entertaining it is, how good the worship is, how good the message is, right? Let's think, does, does this church foster unity in Christ or does it create division in the body? Does it build, does it build up a greater church or does it divide it? So the, uh, the very clear invitation to you is if you see any of this in our church, you see it in me, in our elders, in our staff, in our small group leaders, if you see impure motives, if you see poor fruit, 
We want to hear about it. We want to know. We all have our blind spots and we all work together to, to sharpen one another, to refine motives, to refine heart. So please let us know if you're seeing anything, any impure motive, any wrong heart here in Aligning Life. You can reach out to us individually. You can reach out to uh, the elders on the, um, on the website. There's an a email address for us, aligninglife-elders at Google Groups. That'll get to us. Let's continue on our passage. We've got a few more verses still to cover, and uh, we want to see what Paul, how he you know, continues to move forward on this. He's focused really on the leaders, but then he moves into something that's wisdom for all of us, right? He's, he's going to string together a bunch of well-known sayings from his day in history, proverbial wisdom, but he puts a God spin on it. He, he, he says, this is, this is true, and this is about God. So here, we're picking up in verse 6. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, which stands in contrast to the gain that these, uh, these false teachers are trying to get at, financial gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into a senseless and harmful desire that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So here, Paul contrasts true godliness with what the false teachers are doing, right? True godliness leads to contentment and true reward. Unlike the false teachers who put on godliness, as a means to feed their greed, right? Looking for more and more money, true godliness is at peace with the Lord's provision in our lives. A person that, that is embracing true godliness, this person isn't overly fixated on material possessions, right? Building, amassing more for themselves. Their focus is on the eternal, on people knowing Jesus, about them knowing Jesus, about embracing their salvation and and allowing others to, to be saved as well. Contentment. Contentment is the key here. Contentment is the antidote to greed. Seeing God's provision and being thankful for it, it's a road to true wealth in our lives. And that's not a prosperity statement. Let me unpack what true wealth is. See, it's, it's not wrong to have possessions or wealth, right? Paul is not saying that here, right? He's saying he's content with food and clothing. Material needs are met good to have those things. We need those things. Material needs are real in our lives. And the Lord, in his kindness, has met those, right? He's given us our daily bread. Few of us in this room, few of us go hungry, right? Few of us lack clothing and basic shelter. We're rich in that way. Our material needs, our basic needs have been met. The Lord is good. We can find contentment in that. And that's the call, the call to be content, to acknowledge that our needs are met in the Lord, that he has sustained us another day. Now, that doesn't mean we can't like, prayerfully ask for more or, or long for more uh, or different circumstances, right? For, for a day when things are better or easier or, or less stressful for us. But we're cautioned not to fall in love with the material, not to make that what's consuming us and driving us, not to wrap our lives around amassing more wealth and more more material possessions, right? It, see, because, because 
greed, the, the material, it, it becomes a temptation. It sets a trap for us. It plunges us into ruin is what Paul describes it as, a trap that plunges into ruin. And giving ourselves over to greed, to uh, amassing more for ourselves, it forfeits our soul as we serve money rather than God. We replace Jesus with wealth when we allow ourselves to be consumed by greed. See, because our hearts matter, right? Our motives, our, 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 our motives matter immensely. Greed makes money our master, while contentment makes God our master. That's why contentment is the key. And as, I, as I've thought about this passage this week, I just can't help myself. I can't help reflect on Jesus' parable about the rich fool. Let me read that to you. He shows us how foolish amassing wealth for wealth's sake is rather than living generously towards God. So in Luke 12, we have this, this parable that Jesus tells him. Let me, let me read that to you. And he said to them, Jesus, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, those, whose will they be? So it is with one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is a harsh teaching, right? A strong teaching from Jesus. To illustrate the foolishness of greed, Jesus tells this parable. He tells of a man whose, whose wealth exceeds his ability to store it. So the man decides to build bigger storage and relax and marvel at how set he is for the years to come. Eat, drink, and be merry. And it means nothing, right? Since he can't take it with him, and his life ends. We enter the world with nothing, and we leave with nothing, right? Paul has reminded us of that, just in, these, in, uh, in this letter. In this parable, the man comes face to face with that reality. The man has served his greed rather than God. And when he stands before God, before a righteous, holy God, all the stored wealth means nothing. It doesn't go with him. All that matters is who the man served. And he chose to serve his greed rather than God. He served himself rather than God. The point is this. Be rich towards God, not consumed by greed. Find contentment and give thanks for what you have. This is the path to true riches to being rich in God rather than fleeting material goods that go with his passing age. Be rich in God, which lasts rather than the material which passes away. Contentment is the antidote to greed. It's the cure for the disease of loving controversy, of, of putting yourself above others. True pros prosperity is being rich in God. Let's set our ambition on that. Let's lean into that. As a church, as individuals, let's set that as our goal.
Let's strive to be people who are marked by our encounters with the living God, who regularly pray to him, regularly study and learn about him in his recorded word, and who regularly love and serve those around us because we're the hands and feet of Jesus. Contentment. Contentment, con- con- contentment cures the disease of loving controversy, of keeping the spotlight on ourselves because it keeps our focus on God and what he's done and his provision. It doesn't assert our knowledge, power, or authority as more important than someone else's. Contentment accepts our circumstances and focuses on God. Contentment focuses on Jesus as the one that is right rather than me. His ways and his teachings rather than the extra-biblical frameworks we might create or the or the divisions we might create within the church that separate, that divide. So let us be content in our circumstances as we live like Jesus, with Jesus, and for Jesus in our daily lives, along in life. So as we wrap up this morning, as we sort of reach our conclusion, I want us to remember that motives matter, right? That's what we've been talking about. That's where Paul finishes this letter. The fruit we bear can reveal our motives, so we can look at the fruit of our lives to see Where's our heart been? In the church, those motivated by the thrill of debate or, or seeing themselves as better than others because their theology is superior, they, oh, because they're diseased. They sow division, envy, conflict, and evil. Those motives, those motivated, though, in contrast, those motivated by godliness, by the sound teachings of Jesus, they foster unity and contentment. Under such leadership, the church prospers. True prosperity, true riches in God. Impure motives lead to peril, but contentment is the antidote and leads to prosperity. So examine. Examine the life of the, and fruit of those who lead you. Do it. Come talk to me about my life. Come talk to our elders about their lives. Don't focus on skills alone. Don't just focus on on how someone teaches, how well-spoken, how smart, how entertaining they are. Look at their lives. Look at how they talk to and about their friends, their staff, their children, their spouse. Right? Think about, are they caught up in ugly debate? Do they engage in in online and slanderous conversation? that they wouldn't they'd be embarrassed to say in person, right? Do they argue all the time? Do they love being right more than being godly? Are they gentle and compassionate? Do they focus on Jesus rather than themselves? Do you walk away from a conversation with them thinking, I want to follow Jesus? Or do you walk away thinking, I want to follow them? It's a good indicator. Character matters because it reveals our hearts. It shows us our motives and what controls us, what has mastered us and what drives us. And this isn't just true for leaders. It's true for all of us, right? In my house, you know, some of you know my son. We work with my son all the time, talking with him all the time that being kind is more important than being right, that people are more important than things, that sharing is how we keep friends, right? Because these are the lessons he needs to succeed in life, to have character, to be one that's not controlled by greed, 
for all of us, right? We can continue to learn those lessons, continue to lean into those. But for all of us, we can look at how you treat your, your classmates. Are they competition? How you treat your coworkers? Are they a hurdle to overcome to your promotion, right? How you treat those around you, your classmates, your coworkers, is infinitely, how you treat them is infinitely more important than the grade you get or the money you make. How you treat them makes a deeper impact in their lives and your life than the promotion, than the grade, than the work you accomplish. Because character matters more. In all circumstances, let us strive to be content in God's provision because contentment is the antidote. That's what makes our motives pure. We find our contentment in Jesus. Contentment's the goal because contentment makes God master and makes our lives rich with God, the true prosperity. Riches that can't be lost but remain with us for eternity. Will you pray with me?